Welcome to Interviews for Resistance. We are now into the second year of the Trump administration, and the last year has been filled with ups and downs, important victories, successful holding campaigns, and painful defeats. We've learned a lot, but there's always more to learn and more to be done. In this now weekly series, we talk with organizers, agitators, and educators, not only about how to resist, but how to build a better world. I am Sarah Jaffe, your host. Uh, hi, my name is Kat Brooks. I am the co-founder of the Anti-Victor Project and the executive director of the Justice Teams Network. Let's talk a little bit about the Justice Teams Network and how this idea came to be. Right, so it's really for how two books go, right? Uh, one, started with the Anti-Victor Project in the city of Oakland uh, in December of 2014 when we developed our rapid response model officer involved shootings because we felt like there was a pattern that was happening um, following the minority of people by law enforcement that was not acceptable and that included only having one version of the story which was right. the um, two the demonization of the person who was shot and three the targeting attacking and and uh make the word non-support the family so we rolled it out in the summer of 2014 and we're doing it in the open. Um, and then Patrice Tom Colors, who is the uh, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, um, was also doing up in the town in her community and had been doing some version of it when they were in the for mm -hmm. life. And so they were very much engaged with the uh, criminal justice system at the same point. Um, and some pretty horrible things happened to him. Um, and so she has been able to navigate and navigate and navigate the advice. So she sees one of the formalized rapid response models and had this idea of what would it be if we had two institutions across the state that were doing this work. And um, since our model, a particular model, was already in existence, we decided to utilize that as the primary uh, model that we would train people on and combine that with her organization, the Empire Now Healing Justice Model. Right. Because as much as we need rapid response, physically, we also then need to deal with the trauma, not only inflicted on families, but also on communities in which it happens. Right. So about two years ago, uh, we started meeting uh, with teams around the state and, and coming together in the troops and having phone calls. And then we're finally officially able to launch uh, on Wednesday's lesson. bit more about what goes into the rapid response model. What are the sort of pieces that you have to bring together in order to respond to these unfortunately all too common moments? Sure. So I'll just break down what happened. Uh, so when we talk to somebody, the responding organization, and we use APCB for this format. Um, our Facebook pages go up, our Twitter pages go up, our personal phones go up. Um, we then send an email out to a list of about 500 people that have been trained and are active in the database. Um, they're trauma-informed investigators. And right. that means that they've been trained on how to engage communities and people that have just dealt with serious trauma. Right. So they go to the scene, they talk to community members, they look at the scene, they take pictures, they scour the scene for any video footage that might be existing uh, with businesses. Um, sometimes they took some evidence and it's probably not really helpful, um, but the cops leave behind. And then hopefully they find someone that is connected to the family at that scene. Yeah. If they don't, they come back to social media and they scour social media because inevitably in this day and age, 
someone who would become a sort of holistic fundamentally British work. Right, yeah. Once we connected with the family, we got two primary, again, items. One is to get them 24 hours, either hold a visual or support the community, and hosting their own. Um, and the second is, of course, to meet the family. Um, and then from there, when we're talking to the family, it's about finding everything out about the person that we can. Right. So the news by that time, of course, has come out and said, oh, it's really shot a black man, black suspect is actually really good for this case. Right. Um, he had a gun and he stole a lollipop in 1922 from the Right. As if whatever happened in 1922 has anything to do with what just said now. Right. So we then come up with our narrative, the family's narrative, is really, really, they went to church on Sundays, they were parents, they were close to their siblings, they took care of the mother, and they, you know, to humanize them. Right. Because it's easy for society to turn the other way. We're talking about um, a cop off and saying no humans involved. Right. But when we talk about people, right, dentists, students, mothers, lawyers, cashiers, whatever, we're having a different conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, then from there, we connect them to our legal team, which is like still done under the support. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we support them with communications, legal fundraising, money that has to raise a funeral. We also try to raise money for independent autopsies because it's the one piece of evidence we can get that doesn't come from law enforcement that mm-hmm. often challenges the law enforcement to happen. Um, and then we walk the walk with them, and that is a long walk because while these stories are in the media, maybe 30, 32, um, for a family, this is years and years and years of having to engage with the legal system. And then, of course, right. it never ends. The pain never ends. Yeah, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, and that kind of brings us to the question of the healing justice model and how and why it's so important to provide spaces for people in the community to, to heal and be supported in these times. So the healing justice model looks uh, a couple of ways. One is like it's individual, mm-hmm. but that is not only a morning, uh, uh, a morning of life, it's also a space for community to be able to come together, play drums, pray, like candles, and collective degrees, right? Um, we also have database of uh, healers that do everything from energy work to license to do energy workers to license psychologists. Um, and those things are always free of charge. We have people that are on 24 hour hotlines, or what they call the non crisis, is in accordance with life and mental health workers. Um, and then we do things like what we're going to do today, actually, at San Diego Jail. Where we want to go deal directly with the impact of militarized police incarceration and provide healing tips for people coming out of jail, mm-hmm. me, and families living in the city of Yeah. Um, so it takes on all sorts of things, all sorts of ways, but the, the point is, is to insert organizing protest rage uh, with in-depth uh, healing into that. But taking time for themselves, talking about mental health. How are you doing today? What do you need? Um, and 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 walking people through that process. Yeah, it's really interesting because we hear a lot about sort of self care these days, but not so much about a model of collective care. Yeah, and actually, this is a great point. And Melina Abdullah, who's the founder of the Black Lives Matter, always has to said something that I sort of get into everywhere I can. 
self-care is, is problematic in a way it manifests a lot of times because it usually means that the two or three people <laughs> who aren't going to let the work lay down for any reason end up carrying an unfair, you know, burden. And then it also is insinuates that, okay, uh, if Marlene is having issues, if she says, hey, well, I'm just going to come and she says, if you have issue by herself. Right. As opposed to Marlene comes up with it, it's a y'all, I'm having a hard time. It's what is impacting me on the group figures out what Marlene is. Yeah. And that we're doing it in community and not in isolation. The other thing that, that um, folks mentioned to me was that the idea of also focusing through this on policy changes and particularly on these police officer bills of rights. Um, can you talk right. a little bit about that? I can. So that's just the piece of work that we're engaging in is radical, is radical legislative shift, both at the state level and the local level. At the state level, there's this thing called the police officer bill of rights that provides law enforcement with what I call a blue, uh, blue wall of secrecy, right? right. And it's kind blue wall. Uh, you can't know the names of the officers. You can't know the details of the investigation. You don't know when a cop comes to your community, um, does he have a history or record right. of being utilized in this community? Um, the first thing that families say is why, right? Why does this happen to my loved one? They move very quickly from the why to the what. And I often have to tell them, well, always have to tell them, I can't tell you that. Well, you can't know the names of the officers. Well, you can't uh, know what's going on with the investigation because of this law, right. the statewide law. And so we're working on three pieces of legislation. This is the, the piece that directly deal with that um, at the state level that would radically shift the way in which our bodies are policed. And then we're also doing a public information campaign because while a lot of organizers and activists and families know that this thing, that these officers go away, they just they don't really know what it is, and it's written legally. So we're doing a guide, we're doing a video series, and then we're going to do town halls around the state uh-huh. so people know what it is. And then ideally, we'll get it on the uh, on the 2020 ballot for a school on the field. Excellent. Um, and talking about repealing things like that, what are some sort of proactive policies that would help you know prevent these things rather than just have to respond to another person killed? Right. So there's two, two things. There's one is an actual bill right now called 8931 that is offered by Shirley Weather out of San Diego that would change the legal standard that cops can use to uh, justify legal force. Mm-hmm. So they, they can no longer say, I see it in my life, right, or shoot that question later. It means that they literally could only do that when there was literally no other option. Yeah. And it would criminalize the police officers who put themselves inside of the situation, i.e. jumping in front of the car, moving car. Um, so that's one, right? You can change the standard of the procedure. Uh, we also advocate that for um, accountability, meaning that when cops kill taxpayers in the city, they fill in, cover those civil suits. What would it look like for law enforcement that to cover that out of their pension fund, for instance? Right. Um, and then there's also the, at the local level, strong divest investment movement. Mm-hmm. So in Oakland, for instance, the Oakland Police Department gets over 50% of the general fund. Right. And then on top of that, every single year they clock millions of dollars of unauthorized budgetary spending over time. And so we're working to implement resolution that would divert those funds to law enforcement. Not all of them right now, we're starting with half. So if they get 50% of the general budget, we want 25% to go into mental health issues, that they're in the restorative justice programs, they don't rely on law enforcement to solve conflicts. 
um, job training, education, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So you're running for mayor of Oakland. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so talk about how you made that decision. Um, when people ask me, yeah. and for like almost a year, I, I was getting inquiries on Facebook, I was getting inquiries from Facebook, educators, people that were in the street with, how you could run, how you could run, and I had no interest. Yeah. I liked my life, and I liked to do activism <laughs> where I was doing it. Yeah. Um, that said, I spent a lot of energy and time in my organization, spent a lot of energy and time pushing back on the policies that are being implemented by our current leaders. The last four years have brought us 3,000 people sleeping on the street, a police department mired in a rape scandal, uh, and a musical chairs of peace, um, massive displacement. Um, and so I just started like, okay, uh, the political conditions are right. I think that people are, are called the Trump effect, right? People are like, wait, mm-hmm. yeah. what is happening to our country? What is happening to our communities? And they're ready to imagine a new way of governing and a new way of living. Yeah. And so I said, yeah. yeah. So what are you, um, I know you just made the announcement, but what are some of the things that are going to be key to your platform as you run? So again, one, we imagine community safety, right? What does it look like to not spend some of resources on law enforcement mm-hmm. and spend more resources on community? Uh, you can tell uh, cities morals or values by where they put their money. What would it look like to develop budget cards in process with community and community dictating what we spend our money on? Um, there's a lot of, of uh, chatter around sanctuary. Uh-huh. What is sanctuary for all people? What would it look like for a city to have a real power policy of harassment, intimidation, incarceration of yes, undocumented people, but also LGBTQIA people, black people, brown people, indigenous people? Right. Um, education. Uh, our, our city government and our local government are completely disconnected. What was the, what is the close partnership look like? And then how do we protect our teachers? Our teachers are being pushed out of the city because they can't afford to live here. Right. And developing a teacher training and attention program and prioritizing affordable housing for, for our teachers. Um, these are a couple of the things that we're going to spend the next six weeks, six to eight weeks, yeah. doing community town halls on a variety of issues and develop the platform with the people, because it's not the campus campaign, it's the people's campaign. Yeah. How would it change, do you think, your relationship with the movement to be in elected office? That's the scariest part. Yeah. I think that, by and large, I'm trusted by community. I have a track record and I'm in deep relationships. Activists tend to have an antagonistic mood towards um, toward politicians, for good reason. And of course, we've seen over and over again that we put our people in the office and then I don't know if there's a special brand of water that gets delivered to their home or what happens, but they turn into these people that we don't recognize. Right. So we get we conversation with people before the campaign said, all right, y'all, if I do this, what do we need? Um, and, and I'm remaining in this conversation. So it, 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 it definitely takes some things. You know that when you're in office, there's trade-offs, um, there's compromise in a way that I haven't had any compromise before. Right. Um, but working in the next six months, sitting in, and I, I, I don't know what it is like, yeah. but accountability measure, right? So my anarchist friends who tell me they still love me, they're their sister and they're for office. Okay, <laughs> so that's what's up. But you hold me accountable, right? You hold me accountable, and I will be accountable to you. And uh, and what is collective governance? Like? I don't see it as if I win, 
that I go in and I start making decisions. But right. the same model that they're delivering the uh, developing the platform is how we govern in partnership with the people. Uh, anything else you want people to know about your campaign, about the Justice Teams Network? Anything? Yeah, I think uh, I think the campaign that I'm most excited about is the organizing. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned earlier that we've got 3,000 unhoused people on the street. They can vote. We don't need a physical address. All they need is an intersection. We're going to register and transport unhoused people to the polls. Um, people that are sitting in Santa Rita Jail and North County Jail, uh, if, they're not, if they're not getting, you know, if they're not actively on parole or, or have a felony conviction, they can vote. Yeah. They're going to get ballots in second. Um, so I'm excited about that. If folks have legal expertise in any of that stuff, we would love for you to, to, to hit us up. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it's going to be six months of organizing, not six months of campaigning. And, and I think that that could be new and different and exciting. Excellent. How can people keep up with you and the Justice Teams Network and your campaign? So, justiceteams.org, catbooksforoakland.com, and we're on Twitter and Facebook. Interviews for Resistance is a project of Sarah Jaffe with assistance from Laura Fayabois and support from the Nation Institute. You can find more information at necessarytrouble.org. Thanks for listening.